1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks so much for being here. Chris Stemp, ready to bring it to you. How many of you are really sick of staring at a screen working from home or being on your 40th hour of Zoom calls for the week? You're gonna hear me say it in this interview, but my eye has actually started twitching since the pandemic and always staring at a computer screen. And the thing is, Of course, I realized that technology, always looking at screens, is not helpful. But what I didn't realize is we have now turned almost every human interaction into technology, especially because of the pandemic. Like, what used to be a phone call is now a video call. And for the longest time, I thought, well, yeah, that's better. And I think there are some reasons why that's better. But now I got to stare at your face. Because if I don't, you think, what a jerk. He's not paying attention. Anyways, I, I've just been really struggling with this and decided, let's figure out what's going on. Let's talk to an expert. That's what I do, right? And so we found the guy who wrote the book on it, literally. Our guest this week is Adam Alter. And Adam is a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. He is the New York Times bestselling author of two books. One, the one we're focusing on today, is called Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology in the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Adam is a psychologist. He received his Bachelor of Science from the University of New South Wales in psychology. Yes, he does have an awesome accent. And his Master's and PhD in psychology from Princeton. Smart people alert. Look, as I mentioned, we're talking about irresistible technology addiction, But we spend a lot of time really talking about how the pandemic has really amplified our technology use and some of the nuances behind it. And as I mentioned, this book was a New York Times bestseller. It has sold so many copies. I mean, I can tell just from all the episodes I've done, but there's something like 400 Amazon reviews. It's one of the bestsellers. It's a great read. And so I thought it was great to talk to Adam about all things technology, virtual work, Zoom calls, my iTwitch, all of that. Look, you could have asked Adam a question. Like, what are you struggling with with technology? What do you want to know about working from home? What about behavioral addiction in general? All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. For as little as two bucks a month, you get access to our guests. That is crazy. I don't know why everyone's not doing it. And for a few bucks more, not only do you get that, but you get your own RSS feed for ad-free episodes. And what I mean by your RSS feed is, it will show up in your podcast app just like the normal show. So you don't have to do other stuff and you don't have to listen to ads. You get to talk to our guests, a few bucks a month, and you support the show. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. Here it is, Adam Alter, as we talk about all things technology, behavioral addiction, virtual work, and his new book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Enjoy. I had read your book. I had been aware of it, actually. it's It's got a ton of Amazon reviews. What is it that you think struck such a nerve with people when you wrote Irresistible?
2: It, it's funny you asked that question because I, I, I was interested in this topic in the early 2010s, and I had such a hard time selling the rights to the book. I, I spoke to a number of, of agents and a number of editors and they were like, ah, I don't know if this is a thing. you know, I don't know if this behavioral addiction idea, the screen addiction idea is a thing. And I think what that suggests is just that the pendulum has swung so far from our just incredible appreciation for everything tech can do for us to starting to be a little bit more skeptical. So when I first started thinking about this topic, I think it it wasn't as, as big an issue. It wasn't on the radar in the same way. So it's as much a kind of mystery to me as I think it was to other people early on. Now I think Screens have just taken on such a huge role in our lives, and we've we struggle so much to, to wean ourselves off them that that uh I just think this is an issue that speaks to everyone. Whether you're talking about parents with kids, adults who are just struggling in their own relationships and lives, it's a topic that applies to pretty much every human being.
1: It's so strange to hear you say in 2010 this was a hard idea to pitch because. Of course, at that point, the iPhone had been out for years, you know, laptops, I think were ubiquitous to think that at that point in time, we weren't aware of the addictive qualities behind technology or just the draw of the screen. I mean, wow, a lot has changed in just a decade.
2: Yeah, a ton has changed. I remember when I first started speaking about this topic, the first half of my talk would be basically convincing the audience to care about the topic. And if I start doing that now, people just fall asleep because they yeah. they they just don't need to be convinced anymore. So there's been a massive, massive swing in the last... I would say the biggest the biggest changes were from 2017 onwards. One of the big events in 2017 was an interview with Sean Parker, who was one of the early voices... Uh, behind Facebook, one of the early investors. And um, in this interview, Parker was asked, what were you guys thinking early on? And he, he was very candid about it. And he basically said, you know, we've never really cared that much about your well-being. We've always cared about mining your attention and your time. And every now and again, I feel bad about that. I realize that I'm probably affecting how kids develop their social lives, things like that. And I certainly feel guilty about it, but never enough to have changed the way we behaved. And as soon as that interview came out, I could take that first half of my talk, cast to the side, play a 20 second clip of Sean Parker speaking, you know, from the horse's mouth. and, And that did all the work for me. It's
1: just strange that we didn't I, I don't know it, the way your memory can play tricks on you. I feel like I've always been like, oh, screens they're grabbing my attention. I I remember actually before my wife had a smartphone and she was probably one of the last people, if not the last person, I knew to not have one because this was not that long ago. And I remember we were out at dinner and I had a smartphone she didn't and she said to me like, "Can you just put that thing away?" And I remember being like, everybody does this. It's your fault that you don't have one, not (laughs) my fault that I do. Now, very quickly, I got her one and she's probably surpassed my phone usage. So it's weird how that changes. It is. It is
2: weird. Uh, You know, I think you're right. I think on some level, screens have been a part of our lives for a long time. We've had TVs and people have been playing video games for a long time. Even slot machines have involved screens for a while. So I think we've understood that screens have played a big role in our lives. I think what really snuck up, though, was was how well designed the programs are on the screens we use today, and also, more than anything, their portability. Which basically means that people say I'm not. I would never get a, a like a device implanted into my head or anything like that. But these devices basically function that way. Seventy-five percent of adults in the developed world say that twenty-four hours a day they can
1: reach their phones without moving their feet, which means it's functionally an implant. I had this conversation with my dad the other day. We were talking about AI, and I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. But, and I heard uh, Elon Musk's interview on the Joe Rogan Show. And I thought he very eloquently put it. He said, you know, we we already use AI. We are AI. We are the artificial intelligence. The phone is the extension of our brain, which is essentially what he's talking about with Neuralink and things like that. And it made me realize, I mean, I remember far less now because I store it in the phone. If I park my car somewhere, I take a picture or I mark it on an app or whatever. And that's just one small example. So to your point if you've ever lost your phone, it is like losing a limb. That is not an exaggeration in my opinion anymore. And therefore that goes to show not only is it an addiction, but it is just part of us.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like losing the fifth lobe of your brain. It's it it really that yeah. outsourcing is is profound. And I think that also illustrates the the double-edged nature of of the screens as they are today. So on the one hand, it's miraculous that I don't need to do calculations wherever I am. I don't need to pull out a paper map that's different for every region of the world I'm in. I can translate foreign languages automatically. You know, there are a million utilities that I think make the device an absolute miracle. Um, I'm talking about phones, obviously, now. And um, it's important to keep that in mind because I think we're, we're all, you know, naturally going to be critical of the devices as well. There are great utilities that come from them. But at the same time if you keep outsourcing parts of your brain to phones those parts of the brain wither and you you start to lose certain capacities that were a part of the way humans operated for if not you know thousands of years at least hundreds of years and I think that's one of the big concerns you know you evolve a certain way the species evolves in a particular direction and then you take parts of the brain that need to be developed and used over time especially when we're young and you you
1: stop using them and they they just don't function they don't thrive my dad Was a math major in college, and he always jokes that through all of college, and so he's in his 60s, so we can all imagine how long ago that was. uh, He remembers his math professors laughing about calculators. In fact, they would say, You're not allowed to use them. Okay. And he used something called the slide rule. Admittedly, I have no idea what that is. Point being, uh, I feel like this statement of kind of what you were just saying about that part of our brain will wither, is the same argument that Professor could have made about the slide rule. And now looking backward, we're like, yeah, but did we really need to know how to use that thing? I mean, is that the best evolution we could hope for? What do you think about that? I think it's, that's the question, though. What is it exactly that we're allowing
2: to wither? If you're allowing to wither the capacities, the very narrow specific capacities required to, to operate a slide rule, I'm okay with that because I'm never going to need any of the... Well, maybe I will. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure there are people listening. You'd say, actually, there are critical skills involved in using a slide rule. But if it's something like basic calculation, basic arithmetic, I think there's a good argument to be made that, that that basic function, that mental function is is relevant in so many aspects of life. We don't even realize when we're using arithmetic as a basic kind of way of understanding the world, that if you allow that to wither completely, that's, I would argue, problematic. I think yeah. but way more problematic I'm not just talking about basic functions basic cognitive functions like addition I'm talking about things like how to be a human being in the world how to understand other people's emotions how to work on a team how to function in the workplace how to how to fall in love all of these things they are honed through face-to-face experience. And if you rob people of that experience, I just don't think kids and then teens learn how to develop them properly.
1: I have to tell you that really struck home because my whole life would identify as a pretty extreme extrovert. And with the pandemic, uh, I work from home all the time and I've got a big team. I just actually recently took a new job. So I'm meeting a lot of people, but it's been entirely virtual. The thing that I'm wondering is I really enjoy working virtually because of the things it affords me. For example, I just walked outside, sat on my front porch, listened to the birds, you know, wouldn't happen if I was in my, my office. Sure. So what it's making me wonder or worry is, is the situation, right? The availability of technology layered on top of this pandemic. Is it moving us in a direction that although we have adapted, it is lessening those skills and almost changing who I am. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I really can't figure it out.
2: I think it's complicated. I don't think there's a single answer for it. I mean, I I remember, used to, I used to think about this all the time. If you're sick for a couple of days and you're you're not going to work and you're alone in your bed and you're recovering, once you get back out into the real world even after just a few days interacting with people takes effort in a way that it didn't before it doesn't matter how yeah. extroverted you are it's yeah. this weird kind of natural capacity that in in a very very short time requires retraining and and it's 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 always struck me that that's that's kind of crazy that there's this thing that we do so naturally you spend time with people you converse with them you don't even think about it and then you stop doing it briefly and it just goes away and you have to st- almost not quite start again, but you you certainly for a while think about it more deeply. I think at the end of this pandemic, when we start going back to the workplace, interacting in very big groups, it, it's going to be really interesting to see the way the way that happens. I think we're all going to feel like kids again, where we're just kind of navigating the social universe with fresh eyes. So th- that's not a terrible thing, but I think it does illustrate the importance of having people around you and having face-to-face contact. Now, Zoom does some of that for us, FaceTime, Skype, they all do some of that for us, but I don't think it's the same. Um, but again, it's that, that double-edged nature of having, having all of these utilities at our disposal that didn't exist earlier on, or at least not in the same place in one device or on one screen there has to be some benefit to that, right? Not having to commute, being able to listen to the birds outside, experiencing nature in between bouts of work, that's gotta be good for us. So I I think as with most interesting things, the answer is complicated.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think looking at it from both perspectives. In fact, I'd imagine that request to talk with you or people digging into your material have skyrocketed because I think this secondary effect of the pandemic, okay, we all knew... Well, we're gonna have to use technology. That that's that seemed obvious. What I just started realizing is and this is true. Um, so prior to the pandemic, and as of I don't know four or five months ago, I was on a plane every week. That was my job for the past five and a half years. Everything I did was in front of people, rarely in front of screens. I mean, wow! It was it was extremely nice. Anyways, the reason I bring that up is because now at this new job and the pandemic and all this. Not only do I do my work on a screen and I answer email on a screen and I watch TV on a screen and I, you know, gamble on sports on a screen, whatever else it is, all of my communication is on a screen, meaning Zoom, you know, whatever it might be. And that to me has been a massive change because in the past, even if you worked in an office or or you worked from home, most of your verbal communication was done over the phone where you weren't looking at a screen. And, and I want to know what your take on that is, because I'll tell you from a physical standpoint for the first time in my life, this is weird. My eye has been twitching and that is, <laughs> that was a really weird sign to me. That made me think deeper about this. Yeah. have you thought a lot about how now all of our communication, even what used to be on the phone. Is really looking at a screen. It's
2: a funny thing, you know. You we think of standing in front of someone and talking to them as being a very intense experience, right? You, you, all your attention is trained on that person. But when you're in the same room, your eyes wander. If you watch two people having a conversation face to face, their eyes will not be staring at each other the whole time. You know, they'll move around. Their bodies will move. They'll look in another direction. They'll look over the other person's shoulder. You, you automatically kind of tamp down the intensity of that experience over time. And it feels weird if you don't. If you see two people talking and they just stare at each other the whole time, it, it's like, what is going on here? This looks like a couple of robots interacting. That's an important mechanism. It's very important for us to kind of dial down the intensity from time to time. When you use a screen, you can't do that. So right. all of your attention is trained on that very spot on the screen, whether it's looking at the camera or looking at the center of the screen, You feel like you're being watched, which you are. And the way you're being watched is much more direct. You can't look away because if you look away, it seems like you're bored or you're doing something else because people don't have the same cues. They can't see the room you're in. They don't see what you're looking at. And so the kind of attention you have to exert in this screen universe when we're using Zoom and other platforms is way more intense and and it, it draws so much more of our energy then I think the kind of attention that's required when you're
1: actually face to face with someone. That's one of those things you feel. I definitely feel it. I mean, I was on a call two hours ago where I felt that. I was like, I can't, I can't focus anymore. I can't look at the screen. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't. And the whole time in the back of my mind, I was sacrificing like, this probably looks bad. It was just, I physically can't look at this light anymore. Wow. Yeah. And you
2: you know you you would never do that in in a real room. No one ever no. looks straight ahead for an hour or two no. hours or three hours. It's just not natural. So when I'm teaching, I give so many breaks and I break all the content up so many times over and over again, because I know that if I expect these students to stare at the screen and to stare at me for longer than about ten minutes in a row, What you're experiencing and describing is exactly what they're going to experience. It's you really need to break up these experiences when they're mediated by a screen. It seems like there's more social distance, and so you feel like it's less intense. But actually, as a human being operating through this environment through this medium, it is so depleting. You've got to have uh, have kind of shortcuts and and ways around it so that you 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 give people the chance to replenish those resources.
1: You know, I just want to pause and reach out to anyone who is in a leadership role, who has people that report to them, keep this in mind because I know oftentimes the push has been, Hey, turn your camera on. You know, that's the least you can do. And I was a big proponent of that. But the more I dig in, I feel like this and just hearing what you've said, it's like, we need to give ground rules to, you know what, it's okay to like, turn your camera off. I know you're listening, but maybe you want to put your feet up, look at the ceiling, look out the window and really tune in, you know, with your ears instead
2: yeah i I think it's if you can make it work and if it doesn't feel like the other person is is just not attending at all to what's going on i think it's a great idea i mean any any breaks and pauses i think the easiest thing to do in a a meeting context from a kind of managerial standpoint is just to have breaks so every every 20 minutes say all right everyone we're going to take three minutes let's let's reconvene and we'll go on to the next topic or whatever it is um, mm-hmm. That that goes an incredibly long way, allowing people to turn off that that video briefly. If you require mm-hmm. that it's on at all, is a is a good thing to do.
1: We're going to get into. I want to get into your book and and some of the key concepts there. But before we do, while we're on this topic, is there anything that has been occupying a lot of your mental capacity, mental thought, as it relates to technology, specifically around this unique time in history with the pandemic? I mean, is there? You know, I'm just curious, given your expertise in this area, is there anything you've noticed that is just really grabbing your attention or really changing the game as it relates to this kind of technology addiction and then us being in this remote environment?
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting is it's made me think a lot more about the concept of opportunity cost or attentional opportunity cost. So, what I mean by that is when you are on a screen, we now spend something like four, five, six hours a day on our screens. That—that's on our phones, sorry. So, in addition to that, a lot of us are spending many, many hours looking at a, a computer screen. So, a big chunk of the day spent in front of screens. And the question is, what are those screens robbing us of? Now, in the past, during you know non-pandemic times, I think they rob us of being outdoors, face to face with other people, exercise, you know, other really important experiences some of those things are just not available to us in the same way. It's harder to go to the gym if that's important to you. It's harder for you to have a face-to-face conversation with your friends if that's important to you. And so the opportunity cost changes a little bit. And and it's, it's made me a little bit sharper on that concept, on this idea that when we say, is this screen good or is this screen bad? Part of the question is, what is this experience doing to me right now? But the other part that's really important and, and that I think coronavirus has thrown into relief is, what am I not being able to do by because I've been sucked into the screen? What is it that I'm leaving behind? Like if I take two extra hours to sit and stare at my phone today, what could those two hours have been otherwise? During the pandemic, the answer is not that much. A lot of the time, there's not much else we'd be doing. And so if if what you're doing on the screen is productive and useful or at least helps you relax or helps you connect with other people, there's value in that. When this pandemic subsides and we're able to return to whatever normalcy there will be, I think then the opportunity cost calculation will shift again, and it'll it'll turn out to be the case that there's a ton we could be doing, much more productive stuff, much more beneficial for our well being, our health, our fitness, um, mental well being. And so I think that concept is always important. When you're when you're sitting there on the phone and you're like, ah, this is you know my third hour looking at Instagram, the question needs to be, what if I continue doing this for the next few hours? Am I am I leaving on the table? What else could I be doing? What is the opportunity cost?
1: That is utilizing the assumption that we're able to do those things. Not only are they an option, but we would choose them. So what I mean is like, I might know that, okay, instead of being on Instagram, I can go downstairs into my little gym and go work out. I might even have that capability. I might even identify the opportunity cost, yet I still can't break the habit. I still can't get myself to do it. So it's it feels even more about my own, I don't want to use the word willpower, but my own actions and abilities than really what the technology is doing to us.
2: Oh, 100%. I totally agree. I mean, this is why this concept is interesting to me, why I use the term addiction, even though it's incredibly controversial. I, I think all of this is about, you said willpower, that's a fine word to use, but it's all about control and self-control. That you can know intellectually all the arguments against using screens and still spend 6, 10, 12 hours of your day in front of them. So that's, that's the part that, you know, I'm trained as a, I have a PhD in social psychology and cognitive psychology. So I study basically how we think, the decisions we make, who we decide to spend time with, what we buy, things like that. And so the question is, why have we decided to give so much of our lives up to these screens despite knowing that they're, they're not always doing good things for us? That's what's mm-hmm. really interesting to me.
1: That brings me to this question. So I'm just running you through my experiences now because I think my experiences are very common. I mean, the other day I was on the computer. Basically, I logged in around 830 in the morning. I got off around 930 at night. So 13 hours. Now, granted, there was at least four, maybe five hours in there that I was not at the computer. So call it eight hours in front of a computer, but stretched out with little breaks. When I was done, I was absolutely exhausted. I was drained, my eyes twitching. And I'm like, all I want to do is go relax and turn off my brain. I go up to bed and about 20, 30 minutes in, I realize I've been on my phone for those 30 minutes. What it made me think about is how much have we sacrificed to get the easy high, the easy win, the easy information from a phone? And what do you think it is? Is it creativity? Is it thoughtfulness is it just learning to be bored what is the sacrifice when we fill our time with these screens i think it's all the things
2: you've described but for me the best way to sum it up is that there is no room for serendipity in the world so serendipity is basically just stumbling on good luck or good things um, something that you didn't expect to find and happen to find anyway and it's the source of of you know some of the greatest businesses the world has ever seen, some of the best ideas the world has ever known, some of the greatest art the world has ever experienced, some of the best songs we've ever listened to, the most popular music comes through serendipity. And the way you stumble on good things is by letting your brain free. You let it do its thing. You basically say it's the moment standing in the elevator when you say, hey, I'm going to be in this elevator for the next 30 seconds, my brain's just going to wander. By the end of that elevator ride, if it's if it's that fateful ride, you come out and you've got your next product idea and suddenly you know you're a millionaire or whatever you know it doesn't matter what it is but when you are in an elevator today in, in the year 2020 you get in with your phone and oh, yeah. you, you short circuit that process that that serendipity finding process and if you do that you, you it's not just you it's billions of people doing that constantly i think the kind of net effect or the aggregate effect of that summed across the entire population is a ton less creativity many fewer good ideas a lot more predictability and direction so you know inventiveness is kind of put by the wayside because every time your brain wants to be inventive you tell it hang on a second this is too hard i'm going to play another game of candy crush And, And so we short circuit that whole process
0: and now a quick word from this week's sponsor this week's episode is brought to you by linkedin jobs small businesses have unique needs and despite the current uncertainty One thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so you can find the right person quickly. LinkedIn Jobs is great because you can find the specific skills that you need to fill whatever job position you have open. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for. And best of all, LinkedIn Jobs puts your job post in front of qualified members every day so that it's seen by people looking for jobs like yours. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. So check it out. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash smart. Again, that's linkedin.com slash smart to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode.
1: Yes, I I, I agree with you with that. This is too hard. Yeah. I mean, we, I really think we've sacrificed a lot of the hard things. And look, when I say we, first and foremost, I'm talking about me. I mean, as we speak, what this podcast is a break from is me building a PowerPoint deck. and. <laughs> You know, and, and what I've realized is I have done things in the time I should be building this deck, like five minutes, but it's like, you know what, let me just go water the lawn real quick. And it's just that this is hard and I don't know how fully trained my brain is to do the hard in opposition to the easy that also gives me the good feeling. I think that's right. I mean, I think
2: most good things come from some hardship, but usually what happens with really good things is the hardship fairly rapidly gives way to a state of flow or a state that feels, if not easy, at least comfortable. And in the mm-hmm. in the best case, it feels kind of magical. Things just happen. They just fall in your lap. I can say as someone who writes books and writes articles and, and does a lot of writing in general, a lot of writing is incredibly hard. It's slow work. You sit down at the beginning of the day and if you haven't left yourself a thread from the day before, you have to start fresh. It's just, it can be quite painful. Mm. And and I've spoken to so many writers who feel the same way about starting the process. But what happens is sometimes you hit this magic stride where suddenly you've, in the space of an hour, 2000 words tumble out of your brain. It's rare, Mm. but it does happen. And it's worth doing just for that. People talk about a lot of experiences like that. Anything that's a little bit tricky, like the game of golf, if,
1: if you play golf or- uh-huh. like that, it's the it's same thing. I have to cut you off. That's As soon as you said that, because look, I've interviewed 350 authors. I, I, writing seems like the worst thing on the planet, but <laughs> you, know, you know where I get that flow? Golf. Yeah. And it is <laughs> such an addiction. I'm playing tomorrow. I look forward to it every week. And you, I feel like people who don't play just cannot understand- the level of flow you can get in.
2: It's such a masochistic game, right? You'll play a yeah. whole round. You'll play 18 holes. You'll hit 70 to 120 strokes if you're like me. Oh. And and at the end of it, you'll look back and you'll only remember that one sweet shot you hit on the second fairway that got you two feet from the hole. You know, it's something oh. like that. So it's, it's all about this kind of reward hunting behavior, which is, by the way, a lot of what phone use is. It's hunting oh. for rewards on whatever platform you're using. So, so I, th- I think th- a lot of these experiences that are hard are exactly like that. They're about hunting that reward that may be elusive. It may be relatively rare, but the thrill you get from it is so is so intense. The amplitude is so great that it justifies all of those periods where you were struggling. But you have to struggle to get there. You will never hit those highs if you don't go through the struggle.
1: Yeah, it reminded me of. Are you familiar with Richard Wiseman's work? I, I am yes. Yeah. So we had him on and I remember, I always use this example of him talking about luck. It's just awareness, you know, being able to look around and be aware of the things that are right in front of you. And I think of that as also a little bit of that serendipity, right? If you're just aware, you hear something that triggers something, right? You talk to someone, it triggers something. But again, to your point, how much of that do we miss with the screens in our face? It's a lot of that luck too. Yeah, it is. It is that that's sort of you're basically grazing like an animal would, would graze
2: farmland or something like that. You're grazing territory for opportunity. That's what luck essentially is. It's the difference between being lucky and unlucky much of the time is that lucky people find the threads that the unlucky people miss. It's not that yeah. the, the lucky people get opportunities that no one else gets. It's just that they see them, they seize them, they take them, they run with them. And so they're more effective at grazing the landscape for those opportunities. They may be they may be more receptive. They may be more skillful at seeing the threads when they appear, when they make themselves known. And so I I, I agree completely with that theory of, of not every kind of luck, but a lot of luck, I think, begins that way. It's that th- there is something about the the individual who is lucky. You do play a role in in fostering luck and making it a part of your life.
1: Well, I want to talk to you a little bit more specifically about the content of the book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, one of the things I just want to start off with is the, the underlying basis is behavioral addiction. Can you just define that for us and then tell us why is that something we should even be concerned about or aware of?
2: Yeah. Behavioral addiction is any addiction that doesn't involve a substance. It involves behaviors or experiences, which is relatively new. So, you know, we've known for thousands of years that people could develop what amounted to an addiction to leaves. And, you know, as we got more sophisticated, various designer drugs and things like that, alcohol, nicotine, they're all obvious sources of addiction addiction to experiences is relatively new and recent because the experience to be addictive in the absence of a drug has to be very well designed or well crafted. And so gambling is probably the first example of this, a reliable example of this in history. And then, of course, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've had a massive rise of behavioral addictions all driven by screen-based technologies. So behavioral addiction, this kind of official definition of it is, it's an experience that you engage in over and over again compulsively. Because it feels good in the short term. It's something you want to do, despite the fact that in the long run, it's robbing you of well being in at least one respect. It could be that it's affecting your social relationships. It could be that it's really expensive and so it's leaving you poor. It could be that it's making you less healthy physically because it's leaving you sedentary, sitting on a couch for 12 hours a day. It could be psychological. It could be changing your threshold for boredom, which makes you a less happy person. It could be making you depressed and so on. So, behavioral addiction. Very much like a substance addiction, slightly less acute because you're not actually ingesting a substance into the body, but with the same basic consequence, that it's something you keep doing despite the fact that it's bad for you.
1: How hard is it to delineate between it being bad for you and it not be bad for you? Well, I think when I talk to people, they usually have a
2: pretty good intuitive sense, a subjective sense of whether it's their use of screens or whatever they're doing is bad for them. I think we generally know this. Um on certain levels there are other levels that i think take a little more insight that perhaps we don't always deal with quite as competently um like you know if you're you're a child and you're growing up and you're trying to navigate the social universe you're working out how to deal with other kids you're learning through trial and error don't take this other kid's toy or whatever you don't have the the ability to say hey spending time on screens is robbing me of the ability to 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 do that and so that's a this is addictive and i really should be doing better things with my time but I think a lot of adults, you speak to them and they say, oh, yeah, I, I spend so much time on my screens. I know I'm less healthy. I know I'm not working out as much. I know I'm not as fit. I know I don't spend as much time in nature. I know I don't spend as much time with friends. It's not high quality time. My spouse sits next to me. We just kind of both look forward into the distance while we're on our phones and we don't actually interact. So I think a lot of us know what's good and bad about our use of tech, but not everything is obvious to us. So there's
1: there are a couple of different levels to it given your background in psychology and everything, why did you choose to go that route? You know, Why not just discuss uh, behavioral addiction in general? More so, what do you think it is that's so important about how we relate to technology and this newer idea of behavioral addiction? Well, because
2: a lot of behaviors are not addictive. The vast majority are not addictive. Either they're good for us or they're just not well-designed enough or well-crafted enough to be hard for us to resist. There aren't that many that are left over. They're enough, but they're all new. They're all just, except for gambling, which existed a while ago. Most of the things we do are social media platforms. They didn't exist before, say, two, the very early two thousands. That's twenty years. Um, email is relatively recent. You know, twenty or thirty years old for most of us. I guess thirty years old. A lot of the platforms that I'm talking about and that I talk about in the book, uh, they do happen to rest on screen-based technology, and there's there's good reason for that. Screens are very flexible. Um, if you can engage the visual modality, that is really, really deeply engaging for people. It doesn't leave a lot of room for them to be doing other things, and so their attentional investment in the experience is great, and that makes them very invested. Mm. And so, so that's one one reason why the visual part of it is so important. It's much harder to to get people addicted to a particular sound. I mean, certainly you can listen to music and really enjoy it, but most of us at the end of the day will listen to a song 10 times and then say, I'd never want to hear that again. <laughs> that doesn't happen with Instagram or with with Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or any of the shopping sites that people use or the gambling platforms. We never get tired of them. There are good reasons for that. And so the reason I focused specifically on tech and screens is because I think without tech and screens, it's really hard to create an experience that rises to that level of, compulsion or obsession or engagement that, that causes it to be effectively a source of addiction.
1: That is a great summation of that. I think a great realization that I hadn't quite thought of, you know, again, a lot of this is highlighting things that when you say it, we say, yeah, that makes sense, but I wouldn't have made that parallel. Right. So a lot of the visual aspect is what's going to cause that addiction. I'm wondering what else goes into causing an addiction. When I think of gambling, obviously, I don't necessarily think of the visual component. I think more of the high-stakes nature, the potential for a life-changing outcome, things like that. Have you identified things that specifically lead to or or really draw us to be addicted to a behavior?
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. When I was a kid, I used to worry that I would, you know, what if I ate the sandwich and someone had like dropped a drug on there and suddenly I became a drug addict? I kind of, <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing. It's the sort of thing kids worry about, maybe not, maybe I'm just that weird kid.
1: No, but, I felt like around about cigarettes, I remember when yeah, I was little. Yeah, exactly. So I,
2: I always had this worry, like, what if I'm really quickly and easily going to develop addictions to things? Yeah. And the other ingredient, and that, that doesn't happen. I mean, think about people who have surgery. They go into a hospital. They have surgery. They're on just ridiculously pure opioids, like un- unbelievably pure, pure some, something you'd never find on the street. Mm. The vast majority of those people leave hospital they recover, they go back to work, they go back to their lives, and they don't develop a drug addiction. So the question is, how after experiencing drugs of that nature that are, that are like perfectly designed to be addictive, do they not develop the addiction? There is another half to the equation. And it's, it's basically the deficit of some psychological need that is fulfilled by the, the thing that you are going to, that fill, fills that gap. What that means is, if you are someone who goes into the hospital for surgery, you don't have social support when you get out, you perhaps don't have a job, you feel deeply depressed, you are very likely to leave hospital and say, hey, I felt really good when I was on that drug. I need more of that. You're going to develop an addiction much more reliably when there is a psychological deficit that that addiction or that the source of the addiction can treat for you. Mm -hmm. So for for a lot of us, the things that we do online that cause low-level addictions, if you want to call them that they're treating, it could be loneliness, it could be boredom. They're f- fairly low level psychological issues, but, but without them, we wouldn't be doing this. Like if you were deeply engaged in, say you're training for a marathon or an ultra marathon or something or an Ironman, and you're so engaged in that process and you, all you want to do is be out there training, you're not going to spend as much time on your phone because it's not filling the same need. You're not bored, you're not lonely, you're not anxious. All the things that you need to have met are being met by this this other engagement or pursuit that you have. It may be training for something. So if you have all your psychological needs met, you will spend much less time on the phone. It turns out, though, that in the world as it is today, most of us have some deficits that the phone ends up
1: treating for us. That psychological deficit aspect, I never really thought about it from that perspective. How do technology companies specifically? exploit this behavior and how did they figure it out
2: yeah it is it is a big part there there are two i'll I'll get to what they are in a second but there are two ways to figure out what makes people tick one way is speak to people who study human motivation who know the most about it and those people are people like me who study the topic who've studied it who have PhDs in the topic we know enough about what drives people that we can't reliably say if you build these three things into this video game people won't be able to stop playing it but what we can say is you are much more likely to succeed in creating an addictive experience if you do these you know, 10 things. So that's one thing is you can go to experts. And a lot of these companies have just a lot of them on, on hand. The other thing you can do is you don't, and this is this is where, this is the newest part for me and the most interesting part is if you're a large enough organization and you have access to the data, you don't need theories, you don't need brains, you don't need smarts. All you need to do is create a few different versions of your product, A, B, test it. Keep doing that, iterate it over and over and over again. And what you end up doing is every time you have two versions of your product, if you find that people use version A for an extra 10 minutes, then, hey, do away with version B. Now take version A, create two sub-versions of A, test those out, see which one is more engaging. You just keep doing that over and over again. You're effectively weaponizing your product. You learn over time that certain features seem to engage people. And, And a lot of gaming companies do this. They'll realize, hey, if we put the... Put this particular button or scroll bar over here, people are going to play longer they'll they'll be more likely to go from one mission to the next or if we make this this button red instead of yellow, people do this or whatever. So they learn that stuff the The biggest hooks that these companies use the the first thing they do is they remove all of the cues that gently tell you that it's time to move on and that's that's something that's very new so in the twentieth century, think about the kinds of things we did with our time. You would sit watching a TV show the TV show would 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 end and you knew that you'd have another week till the next episode arrived. And that that cue, when the episode ended, the credits rolled, that was that's known as a stopping cue. It tells you to move on and do something else with your life. Theoretically you could sit for six days and 23 hours in, in your chair and just wait for the next episode, but most humans don't do that. But now the way we consume video, think about Netflix, you get post play one episode ends, the next one begins, the next one begins. And so suddenly you have binge viewing. So removing these stopping cues is absolutely critical. Mm. That's the first one. There are some other things too. This this creation of kind of arbitrary rewards and goals that are built into products. Um, think about like having a thousand likes, a thousand friends, a thousand followers, a thousand retweets, regrams, and so on. Those round numbers play a really big role, and these companies know that, so they gamify everything. There's just metricated feedback on every possible dimension, and we we are suckers for that, um, especially when it's social feedback. So one of the things about about screens that makes them so hard to resist is that a lot of the things we do on them are social in some way. Um, think about Instagram when you post something and you're wondering how people are going to respond to it. That not knowing that that period where you've just posted and you're waiting to see if people bite. Is, is something, it's catnip to humans. We will never not care what other people think about us. Even even as the, there are diminishing returns on, on dollars that you earn over time. When you're a billionaire, the extra $1 means very little to you. That is just not true about social feedback. We care about it endlessly. And so if you build that into a platform, we will come back for it over and over and over again. There are there are tons of other ones. There are a lot of a lot of other hooks. But but just imagine it as a kind of toolbox. There are probably ten or twelve of them you could draw from. I spend a lot of time in the book on six of them. And you you slot them into your product and it's much more likely to be hard to resist.
1: Of course I care what people think, but I definitely don't care about social media. Like that's why as a podcast we're we're not great at it. Although John does love it. He just doesn't do it for us for some reason. But anyway <laughs> the point. I really like I don't ever go on, but I still use my phone plenty, probably the same as anyone else. Right. And what I find is my addiction tends to be more towards information. So Reddit, the news, just reading articles, whatever. What is that addiction serving? Because it's it's a little bit more drawn out, but I, I think I know the feeling that it's getting me towards. What have you uncovered about more of that steering towards maybe information rather than social validation. Yeah,
2: so the, the end of stopping cues is a big part of that. that. That idea that there's a bottomlessness to information on the web. You you used to watch the news, you'd watch the half an hour news and then you get the newspaper the next day and that was all the news there was to consume. That's not how news works anymore. If you're on Twitter or Reddit or you look at whatever website you might go to, whatever TV, cable news you watch, whatever, you, you could just keep consuming it 24 hours a day Nonstop, and you'll never get to the bottom of it. So that's part of it. There's no cue telling you that it's time to move on. But I think also another thing that's embedded in in the way we consume the news today, and you'll you'll notice this on the, the news websites in particular, is you're kind of constantly hunting hunting for the nugget that gives you that burst of reward, that feeling like you fa- you stumbled on a, a gold nugget, and that involves trawling and going deeper and deeper and deeper. And sometimes when you read something, if you're hungry for information on a topic, humans like information. We like making sense of the world. So there is some reward, intrinsic reward that comes from that experience. And it sounds like you're one of the people who feels that way. I certainly, as an academic, I obviously chose a career that was all about knowledge seeking and knowledge accumulation. If you get rewards from that, you will keep seeking new highs. And those highs come from new information that's mind-blowing, fascinating, different from what you thought it was, opening your mind to a new concept. And that's the interesting thing about this is you may not be all about social media. You may be about information. Someone else might be about gaming. There is something for everyone. There is no one who says, oh, phones, no interest, never use them, don't need them. It's just very, very rare today to find someone who doesn't
1: get some source of entertainment or value from something on the phone. What do you say to the person who's like, look, Adam, I hear you, but this is just the way of the world. So why fight against it at this point? Like, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk, I think, and maybe not, but it was somebody like him who said, I don't know why parents fight against giving their kids tablets. I actually encourage it because that's what's going to make them the brilliant engineer or the one that moves the future. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. Point being, there is something to be said about we have to really understand technology. I mean, Hell, I was just reading this thing about people on tick or the TikTokers that are making millions of dollars, and I often wish I wish I cared about that because if I could obsess over it, maybe I could be that. So, point is, if that's where the future is going, it's not slowing do- down. We've got this exponential curve. Why fight against it? I, I think it's it's a great question. It's
2: a really important one. I mean, implicit in the way Gary Vaynerchuk framed that that idea is. If he thinks his kids are, are going to develop certain capacities by being on the screen, then he's being thoughtful about what they're doing when they use it. If you let your kid on, on, say, Facebook or Instagram or some other social media site, and they just scroll endlessly for the first 10 years of their lives, I promise you they're not going to suddenly become magical coders. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so it, it's 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 all about what you're doing, right? This, this idea that screens are monolithic, that they're bad or they're good or whatever, that's so silly. You've got to think about what's going on on the screen is it a utility? Is it some, Are you getting benefit from it? Is it making your life easier to, to leave you more time to do more important things? Is it educating you? Is it bringing you closer to other people who live far away through the magic of Zoom or whatever? Then screens are probably on balance, not a bad thing. And I think that's what's captured by that question or that statement that, um, you know, if what kids are doing on screens is purposeful, it's mindful that they're, they're getting a lot of benefit from it, that's fine. But... It is so easy because everything is on that screen, on the one screen, on the one platform to slip from, hey, I'm suddenly learning to code. Whoop, turns out now I'm on Facebook. Now I'm on Twitter. Now all that stuff is is in the same place. So it requires tremendous discipline, especially for kids. I also think in general, that kind of, you know, the world is this way. Let's just accept it and deal with it and and stop pushing back. I never find that satisfying on pretty much any issue. I think you should challenge pretty much every issue, interrogate it, audit it, question it. If you come out saying, hey, it's fine, the harms are not that great or the benefits are there and they're greater than the harms, no worries, no problem, carry on. For me, and you know, based on that decade of work, there are sufficient concerns about what is happening, especially with kids who are reared on tablets and screens that I think we should spend some time pushing back. And that might mean government pressure to legislate. It might mean getting grassroots support. Look at the way individuals now have started pushing tech companies to be better about consumers and consumer welfare. That's a grassroots movement because we now are starting to take seriously ideas that I think five years ago we weren't really thinking as much about. So I think there is value in pushing back, even if at the end of the day, you come down on the side of saying, hey, look the water's moving too fast, I can't swim against it. And actually that doesn't really matter. I think that's
1: a fine outcome if that's where you fall. I just don't happen to fall there. What would be your biggest recommendation to to everyone listening as it relates to steering away from the addictive qualities? I I would guess one of the things would be just be aware of why you're doing it and and be thoughtful. Uh, Anything else? Being thoughtful is good. I think that's
2: important because it helps you understand what the screen is doing for you. And if you can short circuit that in the first place, that's valuable. I mean, when I ask audiences, I'll ask them, you know, from one to ten, how big a problem is this for you? From one, not, not a problem at all, to ten, screens are ruining my life. Most people fall at like a six, seven, or eight on the scale, which suggests it's an issue for them. Mm. I think the thing is, we most of us feel it's it's playing a big role in our lives. If you want to make a change, try it out sample it but go small to begin and then you can go you can expand from there so do something like this this is what i started doing when i started to be mindful about this i basically said at dinner time no matter where i am no matter whom i'm with no matter what i'm doing it will not involve a screen so i take my phone i have a little box in the kitchen my kids know about it my wife knows about it we put our devices in there and we have dinner and it's it's as, as face-to-face as it can possibly be. And and I do that when I'm at restaurants. I do that no matter whom I'm with, friends, mm. family. That's a small thing. Dinner doesn't take long, but it's it's something you end up looking forward to. It's, there's a richness to it that you suddenly realize you're recapturing by being uh, mindful about using screens during that time and it expands. So then it, suddenly on weekends, you're like, hey, I, you know from nine to five on this Saturday, I want my camera that's embedded in the phone. So I'm going to turn my phone to... To airplane mode. I'll use it as a camera, but I'm not going to use it as a phone or use the data. And again, that, that period of time becomes rich in a different way. You realize there's more to life than what you were doing on the phone. Um, and so start small and then get bigger from there. That would be my, my biggest recommendation if you actually want to make change.
1: I love it. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. The book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Any website or any new books or anything you want to plug last minute here?
2: Um, I, you could find me, if you search for Adam Alter, you'll find my website. Um, my new book I'm starting to work on, it's about getting unstuck and about how we're all constantly stuck. And it turns out there just is no success in this world without being stuck. So it's about how to navigate that process because there's a kind of fork in the road when you're stuck, you can disengage, or you can say, I'm going to quit, or you can say, I'm not going to do this. Or if you know what you're doing and if you have the right tools at your disposal, that experience of being stuck could be step one in a 10-step process that leads to the greatest outcomes in your life. And so wow. I sort of, I'm exploring that at the moment, and that's going to be the subject of the next book.
1: I'm going to look forward to that one.
0: All right. That was the episode with Adam Alter. Hope you enjoyed it. As a reminder, his book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology in the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, can be found wherever books are sold. And like we do every episode, let's jump into the housekeeping quickly. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support the show, you can always support us for free by just leaving a rating and review wherever you downloaded the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous and you want to support us monetarily, head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to keep up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, just head over to the website and sign up for the newsletter over there. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned. We've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.